It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. It's the Adult in the Room podcast where, in a matter of moments, I continue my interview with Jeff Shepard, the man who has forgotten more about Watergate than most people know about it. And the scandal involving the Watergate hearings, the Watergate scandal, the Watergate break-in, personal grudges against Richard Nixon, what really happened in the scandal and why, and his moves now to make bad actors who lied and colluded pay. Ooh, this is good. Tally all the times that you think it, gee, like, this reminds me of something. This, what happened to Nixon actually reminds me of what's going on right now. I mean, it's astonishing. Now, if you heard it and want to immediately go to the interview with Jeff, it's about 26 minutes in. You're missing out, though, because there was a lot of political news in the past week or so throughout the United States of America. First up, my PJ Media colleague, Matt Margolis, talking about the elections, his favorite lady, Liz Cheney, and what she's been up to these days and how her reelection efforts look. Uh, I'm kidding about his thinking she's his favorite lady. Just kidding. And, however, the abortion issue. Uh, will it be a difference maker for Democrats come November in the midterm elections? Enjoy. My guest... This little bit of the program is Matt Margolis. He is the author of Airborne, How the Liberal Media Weaponized the Coronavirus Against Donald Trump, and a best-selling book, The Worst President in History, The Legacy of Barack Obama and the Scandalous Presidency of Barack Obama. Holy crow. <laughs> He's also a colleague of mine over at PJ Media. Matt Margolis, welcome to the Adults in the Room <laughs> podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so so big fan of the Democrat uh, administrations, I take it. You know it. <laughs> when do you find time to write the books and write for PJ Media and do all the other things that you do at your manse in, what is it, upstate New York? You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you where I find the time, but I'm not really sure how I did it. Uh, the last book that I published, uh, Airborne, I wrote in the middle of the pandemic, uh, while everything was locked down, which sounds like it's all great, but when you have a kid who's not going to school and, you know, you're writing regularly for PJ Media, uh, it, it's, it almost seemed like an impossible task, but, uh, somehow I managed to do it. <laughs> well, and yeah, you've got kids. I mean, how many kids do you have? Uh, I just have one son. One son who's at camp at the, as we speak. So fortunately, uh, we have an opportunity to speak without interruption, and that's wonderful. And even if there were an interruption, I'm sure it would be delightful and wonderful. You also run a, a winery, don't you? Or grape? You grow grapes? Uh, my wife's family uh, has been in the grape growing business for uh, many, many, many years, and uh, they have a winery. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely uh, not uh, lacking in wine. Well, that's wonderful. What's the specialty? And do you mind giving us the name of the winery so that we can urge people to go there? <laughs> uh, well, uh, they have, uh, geez, I don't know how many uh, different varieties they have. They have a lot. Uh, mostly, it's mostly, uh, they've mostly conquered grapes. So that's uh, um, grape juice stuff. So that, you know, they used to sell it at Welch's before they, uh, they had the winery. And so now um, they got. 
over a dozen, I think, different wines. Uh, they start off with just five. So, uh, they're, they're doing pretty good. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I live right next to the winery. Wow. And, uh, you know, so my backyard is grapes. Oh, <laughs> it's that's not cool. a bad thing. No, that's really it's, cool. It's not too shabby. So we've got a winery close to where we are, and they have old vines, which is to say they're not old growth vines per se. They're just old vines, and they want to get rid of them. So I asked them, hey, can I get some cuttings of those the other day? And I thought, well, you know, I don't know if that'll work and if I can just grow them for grins and giggles. But I thought, well, I'll just give it a shot. Is it worth trying? Uh, you know, that's a good question because it's uh – uh I, there's a there's a lot of science involved that I don't understand. You know, uh, I've had it tried to be explained to me before, and and you know, it, I think it takes a a special type of person to get into it. You know, it's it's a very intensive process. Uh, it's all year round. You know, you still got to do stuff in the winter time, and there's all kinds of weird botany, sciencey stuff that uh, <laughs> you, you know, sm people smarter than me uh, have to figure out. <laughs> So the crush is when September. Uh, we usually um, harvesting is in the fall. Uh, they usually spend uh, all summer kind of soaking up the sun and, and developing sugars and all that stuff. And different varieties uh, mature at different rates. So you know, there's it's not all at once, but uh, it's an interesting process. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, uh, definitely, you know, it's time to start harvesting when uh, the fruit flies are, are going nuts because uh, you can imagine uh, being on the property of uh, grapes. I get a lot of fruit flies in the mm. house because of it. So Yeah. Yeah. So are, do you, are you pressed into service often to help during the harvesting season and the crush and all that? Uh, not much. There have been a few times where I've... Uh, been called upon to help, but, uh, you know, in reality, they, they've got their, their workers who know what they're doing. And I'm just the, I'm just the guy who, uh, writes for PJ media, who you probably shouldn't trust with uh, too much complicated stuff on the farm. <laughs> well, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the election results from Tuesday of this week. And, I know that you are a big Trump fan, and tell me what some of the more interesting races that you saw uh, impressed you or concerned you in this last uh, primary election. Well, you know, uh, what was interesting is that uh, what I found to be uh, the, mo the most interesting uh, election of them all was actually not uh, an election period. It was the... Um, the abortion vote in Kansas, which oh. I ju just wrote about, uh, where that uh, that amendment lost uh, overwhelmingly, uh, which was kind of surprising when you consider this was Kansas. Yes, uh, and you know, I I read about it and I and I heard you know saw the media was basically saying, "Oh, look at this! Republicans are really in trouble now." And I kind of looked at the numbers and I'm like. No, they're actually not. And uh, so I did a deep dive into the numbers to and kind of de debunked some of the myths about how, you know, the, the argument that the media is making is that, you know, if, if abortion is the is the big issue of the primary that, uh, or of the uh, midterm elections, uh, this doesn't look good for Republicans. But, you know, when we look at what happened in Kansas, uh, we don't actually see. Uh, any significant boost in turnout that is uh, concentrated specifically to the Democrats. So uh, I don't think that we're going to, we're actually going to, this doesn't play out. 
that it that it's a, that it was a big victory for uh, for Democrats that spells doom for Republicans who are uh, still on track to to do very well in these midterm elections. Uh, so, but you know, we're seeing a lot of a lot of people in the media kind of uh, try to give the Democrats hope that there that there's going to be a, a different turn a turnout. Uh, in uh, November, but I'm not seeing it. Yeah. So what was the issue in Kansas? Was it just simply unfettered access to abortion? Well, you know, I think the biggest problem with, with uh, that amendment was the way it was written. Mm-hmm. And, and I go over this in, in my article that uh, when, when, you re- when you read it, uh, it sounds like it's a blanket abortion ban. Uh, what basically the bill says at the start is that the amendment would affirm that there is no Kansas constitutional right to abortion. Well, if you read just that, it sounds like they're banning it outright. And one thing I've known from writing about this issue since the the Dobbs opinion was leaked is that, you know, people are generally in favor of abortion, but they have support that there's a lot of support for reasonable limits, which tends to be, which, so every trimester, we see support for abortion get less and less by a significant factor. Usually, it like halves uh, with every trimester. Very, very small amount of support for full-term abortion. Uh, this bill or this this amendment was very poorly worded. And if you just read that first sentence, you're thinking, "Oh, they want to ban abortion completely," uh, and that's that's not what it did. But I suspect that's what a lot of people thought, and that's probably why it went went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the real lesson of that particular vote is that Republicans need to be very specific about uh, the language they use when they t- when they're trying to regulate abortion. And you know, if you're gonna outright ban it, you know that that you, you can certainly try. But I think the uh, the best approach is to go after uh look at look at the polls and see what what the people support and don't go for the outright ban right away but you know start at you know um 12 weeks and i think you'll see that uh you'll get people support i mean i think a lot of people most people support a ban after 12 weeks i think that's where you should go so uh the national review went through all of the the state abortion laws and found that not uh, despite what the Democrats were telling you or the so-called abortion abortion fans were telling people and trying to scaremonger with, there was always a proviso that would uh, make sure that women who had their health uh, somehow you know, they, they were in dire straits and with a, a pregnancy, their lives would be spared. Obviously, rape and incest and all sorts of different things that were uh, that allowed people to have an abortion should they desire one, or if it was um, impacting their life. So, in other words, the talking points were all moot. They were wrong. They were intentional lies. And so I, I think that the wording of the Kansas uh, initiative or the Kansas law or what have you is essential because there's so many people willing to lie about what these issues oh, are. For, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And th- that the thing is, is that, you know, we know that the left controls the media, that they can they can essentially, uh, you know, create the narrative and you, you can't. You can't give them wiggle room to do that, right? Uh, so uh, I, I, I strongly believe that if it, if the wording had been more clear, or even if that first sentence had been not part of the amendment, that it would have passed uh, probably quite easily. Interesting. 
Well, we'll find out. And in fact, that's what's going to happen in all 50 states. We'll have separate uh, uh, elections or the laws will stand or uh, you'll have the public policy debate in every state after the Dobbs decision, because that's where it always was prior to that, to Roe v. Wade, and will now henceforth be again. So I turned to the Washington Post this morning, Matt Margolis, and I found that there were an incredible amount of so-called, quote, election deniers elected to office. Uh, Donald Trump recently issued a howler uh, cease and desist letter to the likes of CNN and other media to tell them to stop using that terminology because it was finding its way into the January 6th uh, committee hearings. And he wanted them to excise all the stories that use that verbiage. So in all of those things, uh, the the election denier, which of course invokes the, uh, harkens back to the Holocaust and all that stuff, which is odious anyway, what do you make of the Donald Trump wins and losses on the primary issues and elections this week as well as uh, the fact that the framing of these issues and these people is uh, just soaked in misunderstanding and misrepresentation? Yeah, I, I think Trump has a, has a very good point to be uh, angry about the, the language that's being used. You know, we, we've never seen such a... Uh, a widespread attempt by the media to uh, delegitimize opposition to an, an election result. I mean, we, we, we've seen Democrats oppose election results and, and question the legitimacy of an election. Every time yeah, a Republican every time, wins. Every time a Republican <laughs> wins. I mean, we saw in 2000, <laughs> we saw in 2004, uh, we saw in 2016 for crying out loud. I mean, oh, we yeah. went through, we went through this whole thing of, you know, this whole bizarre, stupid idea that Russia was somehow, had, had somehow colluded with Trump to steal the election. And there are still Democrats who believe that to be true. I, I mean, Hillary Clinton still says the election was stolen from her. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I mean, I think this whole thing is silly that uh, you know we're, we're still taught we're still you know delegitimizing people who question election results, and you know I, I think it, it comes down to the fact that they're, they're not election deniers. These these are people who just want to make sure that that elections are uh, fair uh, and legitimate, and you know so questioning the results of, of an election has been. <laughs> common for 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 years we know Mm -hmm. we we know people when they when they lose they they say that there were problems and this this happens all the time Mm -hmm. uh but (laughs) i'm sorry but i mean i can still remember that election night 2020 and something was definitely strange with with how the election turned out everything looked to be going trump's way up until the middle of the night when all of a sudden all these votes are being found uh, so is, is remember there a, when the four states just turned off their their counters? Right, exactly. I mean, you can't tell me that if, that if the situation was averse, that the Democrats wouldn't be crying foul about it and and questioning the results. Because I mean, this is what they do, and we know that, that this is what they do because they've been kind of preemptively questioning the results of the upcoming uh, midterm elections. You know, we've mm-hmm. you know we've discussed this on PJ Media a number of times. Uh, that you know they're they're talking about you know a uh, Joe Biden's even said, you know, someone was asked if he'd accept the results of of the of the midterms, and he said, basically, he said, well, it depends on how they turn out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, this this kind of baked into the cake idea that, well, the only legitimate election is an election that that the Democrats win. 
That's exactly right. My husband has a favorite saying in which he says, well, you know, it really boils down to everything's fine if they're in charge, but when they're not in charge, it's not fine and something must clearly be wrong with the situation. It's just, uh, it's a power mongering, it's power hungry and that sort of thing. I did talk to, when I was uh, doing radio last week, I fill, I, I was filling in last week on KTTH and, and, uh, I talked to our colleague, our PJ Media colleague, Jay Christian Adams, who of course is an expert on election law. And so, I mean, I was trying to convey the idea that, okay, so there wasn't wholesale fraud. Okay, fine. But there was wholesale changes in law for COVID purposes that changed the tenor of elections across the country. That is something. And then uh, when I asked him about the, you know, the Obama, or sorry, it's same thing. The Biden administration weaponizing every single uh, administrative organization in his in his uh, purview to do something about turnout in election. I asked him. I said, "Well, come on, man! Isn't this essentially uh, opposing the Hatch Act?" And he laughed because he said, "Oh, believe me, nope, it won't be. They will not find that this does anything to." Uh, you know, break the Hatch Act, which is uh, doesn't allow employees and government to to take sides in election, which I think we've all seen them do over right. the past few years. And the past has shown that the pe- people don't really care when people start talking about Hatch Act violations. <laughs> That's true. Don't. They don't. And he said, well, I had a guy in my office and he was with the elections office at the time in the at the DOJ. He, so he was a federal prosecutor. And he says, the guy put a, an Obama poster during the election in our office. And if that's not opposed to the Hatch Act, I don't know what is. And they said, you know, I'm going to believe this. No, wasn't opposed to the Hatch Act. But he does, um, I noticed that in, I think it is in Pitts or in, uh, is it in Pennsylvania or no, Michigan, where George Soros is now coming back and saying, okay, you guys don't want us to have the Zuckbucks in there anymore and take over a local election laws, uh, election offices so that they can become turnout machines for Joe Biden. But we'd like to keep Michigan. Thank you very much. And so he's backing an effort to forestall any changes in that, those laws. What do you make of that? <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's just easy to assume that uh, Democrats and anything connected to George Soros, they got they got tricks up their sleeves, and it's just, you know, uh, that, uh, Republicans should should never kind of turn a blind eye to this. They got to keep fighting it because uh, any any dirty trick that they have, they will use, and we can't pretend that uh, uh, they're they're not always doing this. I mean, look at what they did with COVID. That they use that as an excuse to to basically make our elections like so vulnerable to fraud and that don't pretend it's not it wasn't by design yeah it's it's hard not to see it as being by design at this point is it uh certainly not i uh yeah i don't trust democrats when it comes to elections they always seem to be on the side of uh well just make it easier for everyone to vote and we'll we'll just figure out all the all the messy stuff later you know oh you you don't you don't actually live in this church well just vote anyway and we'll figure it out i mean come on i'm working on a story for pj media and uh, of course it's about in washington state they've had mail-in balloting for quite some time and since oregon went to mail-in balloting in the late 80s there's only been one republican that has won statewide office after you know opening the floodgates of all kinds of craziness and so but in washington state there is a post office, and I, 
I believe that's not the only one, but in this case, it made the news. I don't think that the local uh, news uh, outlet actually fully appreciated what this meant. But uh, people have been waiting for two weeks for their mail, weeks and weeks, mail's getting lost, all kinds of chicaneries happening at at, at this uh, small post office in this northern Washington town. And I've got reports of others. I brought this up on the air and I'm writing a story for PJ Media about it. And uh thing is, if we're reliant upon the post office to get us our ballots on time, which a lot of these people didn't get before August 2nd, which was the primary for for Washington, then how can we rely on the post office to do special things and have total security for our elections? (laughs) What really amazes me about this is how, you know, the the, um, inefficiency of the post office has been the butt of jokes for decades. I mean, you know, I can think of two 90s era sitcoms that made huge jokes out of this. And you, you had Cheers with um, Cliff Clavin being a, 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 a postal worker and, you know, Seinfeld with uh, Newman uh, also working for the post office, constantly making jokes about about the post office and, and how bad it was. And and all of a sudden we're like, OK, well, now we're going to trust our entire elections on, on the on them. Really? I mean, does does anyone not think this is going to cause a lot of problems? <laughs> Uh, and, and we're supposed to, to accept that, uh, you know, th- this is, this is how we're going to run our elections. It's like, I don't think that that's right. Uh, you know, I, I understand the idea. Oh, well, let's get as many people as all we can to vote. But at the same time, I also feel that, you know, that the, that the founders, uh, that they, they created this, this, the system with the idea that, you know, people, it shouldn't, it shouldn't just be everyone votes. It should be people who have, a, you know, some, 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 some sort of stake in everything. People, and it shouldn't just be like, well, let's just go around and collect your votes. You have to go there and do it. You know, yeah. let, let's, let's not make it so that, you know, every, everyone, you know, even on their deathbed is, is voting. It, it, but let's, let's make sure that the people who want to vote, vote and not make it for people to these people who don't really have any care in the world just being told well here's your ballot you know i've already filled it out for you just just, just sign, sign your it. name to it you know i mean i don't like think they that... check signatures right exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly uh, you know uh, what oh go ahead finish uh, your thought. yeah i mean it's it's it, it's just mind-boggling to me because to, to me it seems like the democrats are always quite blatantly advocating for a system where fraud can be a- just absolutely rampant and they they act like it's out of uh concern for you know access to voting and and all and it's just just not the case i mean you know, we know what they're doing we know what they're doing they're trying to give themselves an advantage any advantage as infinitesimal it may seem at one at a certain point it it, it Sometimes it just it redounds quite well for them. So the the Democrats and uh, people on the the left always like to say that uh, uh, they are in favor of community. Everything is a community. There's the X community and the Y community, and the and, and they break everything down in communities in efforts to tribalize people. But you know what I find interesting? They don't want us to have any community when we all gather together to go vote at the local church or the local school. They don't want that. Why? 
<laughs> they also don't like it when the military votes. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, we, we saw that in, in 2000 in particular. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's a very true observation, though, is that uh, they want their groups to vote, but they don't necessarily want, you know, everyone to vote. Uh, make it easier for people to, to vote multiple places. Make it easier for these quote-unquote marginalized groups you know let's uh you know i mean we, we've seen all kinds of bizarre things where uh uh i swear i i remember a story once uh when the past few years where uh minority votes count more than white votes uh you know all kinds of mm -hmm. just bizarre proposals they think are trying to make things more uh equitable, equitable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I mean, that's the new buzzword. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's no longer equality, it's equity. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, it's not about everyone is equal, not one person, you know, every person, one vote. It's now about let's make sure that we get the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the equality of outcome, not the equality of access. And, yeah. uh, and that's just the wrong way to approach it. Speaking of um, people who are your big fans of Liz Cheney. <laughs> oh, Liz, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember I had such high hopes for her. You know, I was definitely a big fan of her dad when he was vice president. And I thought, you know, and, and the fact of the matter is that she, I mean, she, she was certainly a reliable conservative in, in the house, but some, somewhere along the line, she decided that she was going to be a pawn of the Democrats. And, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just I'm I'm not gonna be feel sad to see her go. Yeah, yeah. Did you see that she had Kevin Costner out there wearing a shirt talking about how real men vote for their country instead of party, or was it the other way around? I don't know. Anyway, somebody somebody pointed out the fake a fake Wyoming rancher is your only hope I mean that's a problem isn't it <laughs> yeah and you know when when you got a Republican uh, trying to bank on a Hollywood uh, celebrity endorsement to save their campaign that that's pretty bad but you know uh, Costner is is by no means a Republican and you know I wrote about this the other day and, you know back uh, he he's He's a Biden supporter. He, uh, when he was, he was in Cuba, you know, but 20 years ago promoting oh, a yeah, movie and he was palling around with uh, Fidel Castro. You know, I don't think that's going to impress the voters of Wyoming very much. So, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, she, <laughs> she might have had a little misstep there, but, uh, Yellowstone's a great show. Yellowstone's a great show. Kevin Costner, not as great. To the voters of Wyoming. Okay, I, I've already kept you past when I said I was going to keep you, but uh, just parting question: Who was worse, Karine uh, Jean Pierre or Baghdad Bob? Uh, you know, uh, that's a very good question. They are definitely torn from the same cloth. Uh, I, I remember thinking that nobody could have been worse than uh, uh, Circleback Girl uh, oh. Jen Psaki, uh, <laughs> but somehow, somehow, Karine has managed to do that. Uh, Baghdad Bob, uh, I, I remember his, uh, seeing clips of his broadcasts, uh, and I have to say <laughs> that it, that it is a very, very tough call. Uh, I mean, remember the other one, he'd be live on CNN, you know, and there'd be bombs in the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everything's fine here. Everything's, everything's fine. Oh, man. <laughs> 
Because, uh, I mean, like, really, like, they're, they're basically doing the same thing now. That's uh, most ridiculous uh, things that we've never seen before. I mean, we've seen the, the White House literally redefine recession right before our eyes. Uh, and we're expected to believe that uh, and fall for it. And, and I just, it's, it's kind of scary that they think they can get away with it. But the way that the media falls in line with whatever they say, you know, uh, everyone was laughing at Baghdad Bob. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, you know, most of the mainstream media is just falling in line with whatever she says. So, I mean, she, she's, she's worse in the sense that she's being legitimized by the mainstream media. The fourth estate has been turned into the fifth column. I mean, it's shocking. It is. Yeah. Well, Matt Margolis, thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the, the Room podcast. Appreciate you doing that. And, uh, I know you've got lots of work to do. <laughs> yep, it never oh. ends. Uh, yeah, I gather that. Yeah, you're a busy guy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. So Matt made political talk kind of fun, huh? Okay, so now it's time for part two of my interview with Watergate expert and former Nixon White House attorney Jeff Shepard. Now listen for the part about what he is doing now about the legal wrongdoing done to Nixon all those years ago. He's seen enough. He's read all the papers, the documents, all the stuff that's been hidden and uh, memory hold for years. Some things are at universities. They've just been released. He's read them all. He's the expert. Oof. Enjoy. First of all, we have a break-in, we have a cover-up. Then we have the Pentagon Papers situation, which occurred prior to that, correct? That's correct. And that was and so Nixon wanted to stop the leak of the Pentagon Papers, and that was yet another thing that sort of clouded and became a part of the hydra-headed Watergate stuff. Can you explain what happened there? And and it's worse. It's worse. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, absolutely. When the uh, Cubans are arrested, caught red-handed. Uh, um, in the uh, Watergate. Uh, at least it only had to do with a re-election campaign. It wasn't the White House itself. But those same Cubans, not exactly, but several of them, Ant Hunt and Liddy, had masterminded a break-in following the leak of the Pentagon Papers. They broke into the office of Daniel Ellsberg's shrink out in Beverly Hills. Because Ellsberg not only leaked the Pentagon Papers, but he had access to 54,000 pages of classified documents through his work with the Rand Corporation, which was out in Santa Monica. And they didn't know what else he had in mind. And so, the Pentagon Papers, to re, uh, reiterate, were uh, the stories of what happened uh, in Vietnam and a lot of the lies told and things that uh, the American people were told that was going on and uh, were going on in the Vietnam War, but may or may not have happened. And uh, there was there were sources, methods, there were individuals who were outed as a result of the printing of the Pentagon Papers and that sort of thing. And the New it, York Times wanted to do so, it wanted was, to print them. It was considered to be the biggest national security leak. Of the 20th century, uh, what had happened? And, what had happened? And, and well, just to, just to yeah, clarify, Nixon was not involved necessarily in the Pentagon Papers for himself. It was all about what was going on, the lies told, etc. In the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, just to be clear for our listeners, absolutely. Go ahead. What had happened 
was the three most senior anti-war officials in the Department of Defense convinced, convinced Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense, that they really ought to go back and figure out how they got into this mess in the first place. Mm. So he must have nodded or murmured or something. But these three guys uh, got this huge project underway uh, in secret uh, that started with World War II because we had coordinated some World War II initiatives with Ho Chi Minh, the founder of the French Communist Party and the Vietnamese hero of the, of the North Vietnam. And then it traces the growth all the way up through Eisenhower, through uh, DMBM Fu, where the French get wiped out, and the Geneva Accords, uh, all the way up to Jack Kennedy, who first puts 17,000 troops in, and then Lyndon Johnson, who builds the number to 536,000 U.S. troops on the day Nixon becomes president. And the Pentagon Papers stop right then. Mm. Now, they weren't really through with them. This is a secret project. State Department didn't know about it. The National Security Council didn't know about it. It was not vetted. It was not peer-reviewed. And it was done by three anti-war uh, officials. They took it with them to Brookings and kept working on it for the next six months. Daniel Ellsberg started out as a hawk. He, he was a... a Green Beret or a Marine or something. He's oh, a uh -huh. decorated veteran. And he Special turned against guy. the war. Not A lot of people turned against the war. Sure. Uh, and he was trying to market these Pentagon papers, and nobody would pick him up. He tried to give them to uh, a Fulbright, a senator on the uh, Armed Services mm -hmm. Committee. And Fulbright wouldn't touch me. He said, you, you transfer these to me officially, and I'll deal with them. But I'm not taking them under the table. And and, it, and the motivation for Nixon to try to keep the Q, these on the QT was the fact that Henry Kissinger was over in China trying to open up the relations between the United States and China. They had the uh, ICBM thing going on with yeah, the Russians, right. and they were playing, and Nixon was playing both of those superpowers against each other. And they didn't want them to think that anything they said in the bargaining room would make it into the Pentagon Papers of, you know, 20 years from now. That's, that's Absolutely right, Victoria, with one caveat. Nobody in the Nixon White House had any inkling of the Pentagon Papers until the New York Times started printing them. So it wasn't they knew and they were sitting on it. It was a huge surprise to them. But it was only it was dumping all over Lyndon Johnson. I mean, they tried to protect Jack Kennedy, but boy, did they sell Lyndon out. So the people on the White House staff initially said, this isn't our problem. Why get involved? But Kissinger said just what you said. We are negotiating in secret with three totalitarian, totalitarian regimes, North Vietnam, Russia, and China. And if they think we can't keep secrets, they won't negotiate with us. So you've got to stop these leaks. The White House got all excited. It established this group called the Plumbers who were supposed to stop the leaks. And the huge mistake I think they made was they became operational themselves. They ran this idea of breaking into Ellsberg Shrink's office out of the White House itself, masterminded by Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, who did the Watergate break-in. But note the difference. The Watergate break-in is done by the campaign. The White House is clean. 
But if Hunt spills the beans about the plumbers break in, that's the White House itself. Mm-hmm. And that's a disaster. So that was one of the reasons there was a cover-up to prevent at all costs the news of the Ellsberg break-in. Now, when John Dean sensed his cover-up was collapsing, he ran to the prosecutors and he took these records with him to try to bargain for personal immunity. They wouldn't give it to him. But John Dean was using the plumber's break-in as his excuse for not coming clean on Watergate. And then the minute he needed evidence for his side, he takes all these all these uh, papers and, and he runs down and gives them to the career prosecutors who appropriately concluded they had to tell the judge. They were prosecuting Ellsberg out in L.A., they had to tell the judge that the federal government had tri- had broken into his his psychiatrist's office, and, and and Watergate took a huge turn for the worse. Yeah, and why would why did they want his psychiatrist's office records? Were they hoping to learn something nefarious about well, they, Ellsberg? They, to they, they were keep trying him to, silent, they, or they're trying to figure out what on earth Ellsberg had in mind with these fifty four thousand other documents. Mm-hmm. They interviewed the shrink. The shrink said, I, "I'm not going to tell you a thing." And they thought maybe Ellsberg had told him his intent. And so they decided maybe they'd go have a look. Now, it turns Uh out, it turns out that the church committee, which comes after uh, uh, the the, uh, cover up. After Nixon resigns. Yeah. uh, uh, Hoover's dead from the FBI. Richard Helms has gone over to be ambassador to Iran. And the church committee starts asking questions about domestic uh, spying. And the CIA and the FBI and the military intelligence units fess up. So it turns out for the previous 40 years, for national security purposes, the FBI, the CIA, and and military intelligence would break into people's houses, would install wiretaps without court authority in the name of national defense. That, in a way is what the plumbers did in the name mm-hmm. of national defense. They were trying to protect the secrets that, the, that Ellsberg was, seemed intent on disclosing. But the prosecutors, special prosecutors, knew of these 40 years of prior intrusions, but didn't tell the defense lawyers. So once wow. again, you suppressed exculpatory information, shows the guys didn't get a fair trial. Well, it may or may not have been exculpatory, but I suppose it would have been helpful to have that as the backdrop against which this Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist break-in would have been compared. I think that's very fair. I think it may or may not have been exculpatory, but to say to the jury that you can't prosecute these guys because their predecessors have been doing this for 40 years. Yeah, maybe it was just the way things were done. And that's, I guess you could make that argument. Let me ask you about this because a lot of people say, okay, well, uh, we had some issues, uh, the break in, the cover up. When did Nick, what did Nixon know? And when did he know it's at Howard Baker, I believe. And, uh, but then we had the overlay of the reaction of the media in their, almost uh, hunting-alike tactics to get Nixon uh, because they felt like, oh, there's something really amazing going on here because the Washington Post uh, broke the story. But here's the thing. So Mark Felt, who is deep throat, here's a guy who was a person who 
was disaffected. He did not get the top job from Nixon when Hoover, when, died. When right. Hoover died. And he was very upset. There were a couple of things that uh, Bob Woodward says in a subsequent piece uh, when Deep Throat passed some years back. He felt that um, – uh, Nothing he that felt had nothing but contempt for the Nixon White House. I read here, and then also that because uh, Bob Woodward, uh, they met each other years before, and they knew each other, and they kept in touch, and that sort of thing, and they were friends, professional friends as well as personal friends. Eventually, and as Bob Woodward wrote, Deep Throat, who was used to running spy ops, I suspected in his mind, I was his spy. He, Mark Felt, Deep Throat, was running an op. Well, two two quick points. Um, deep Throat, uh, Mark Felt may or may not have been the Deep Throat that Woodward describes. Lots of people think it was a composite. Felt was certainly one of their sources, but not the exclusive source. We don't know, because when Deep Throat's, when Felt's daughter outed him, he was so senile he could not confirm or deny I have a question because yeah. I'd like to interject here. Yeah. If you think it's a composite, do you not think it's because Woodward and Bernstein, the reporters from the Washington Post that broke the story, were trying to get information out, but they couldn't quote anyone else, so they quoted their secret, super secret source, Deep Throat? Well, they, the, supposedly the Post had an internal rule that before you could print something as as adverse against the president as these stories – you had to have two sources. Mm-hmm. And and it, there's a lot of people who think they faked Deep Throat as their second source. The, the name Deep Throat was not bandied about until their book. Uh, right. uh, that was just, just because their editor said, we got to sex this thing up a little bit. Right. Now, and that was like, the name of a porn okay. movie. Yeah. Porn, right. Star of a porn movie. Now, Star of a porn movie. Uh, understand this. Woodward and Bernstein knew for 30 years – that Deep Throat was not a member of Nixon's White House staff, and they didn't, they allowed that misunderstanding to continue, which of course poisoned everybody on all of Nixon's people. Mm. They didn't have to disclose his actual name, but they needn't have allowed the Nixon White House to be dragged through the gutter when they knew it was wrong. Uh, uh, secondly, Deep Throat's disclosures, or what Woodward and Bernstein knew, The prosecutors, the career prosecutors already knew. Earl Silbert, the head prosecutor, has said nothing in deep, in uh, Woodward and Bernstein's stories was news to them. The public didn't know, but they were already investigating those leads. They sounded like earth shattering disclosures, but not to the federal prosecutors. A couple of, uh, 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 a couple of other things. Woodward and Bernstein actually interviewed one or more grand jurors, illegal, improper, wow. but they lied about that too. And that didn't come out till 2014. And when the author wow. was putting that out, uh, Woodward threatened to ruin his career if that came out. I mean, I'm not going to say as a reporter, I didn't try to talk to grand jurors because let's face it, I did. They know but a lot. It's, they, they, hell do. They, they yeah, know a hell of a lot. You don't want to get caught. <laughs> Now, let's go, let's go back to the charges because this reflects on today and reflects back then. The top Watergate people, not the break-in people, 
The top Watergate people are charged with what are called thought crimes. Obstruction of justice, conspiracy, and perjury. And in those crimes, it's not so much what you did as what the jury concludes was in your mind when you did it. So you can stop and buy a plain donut at Duncan's, and the theory of the prosecution is that was a signal to the baker to go do something. <laughs> and, and the question is, does the jury think you were a part of the conspiracy? Now, John Dean, he's the president's lawyer. He's, he's heavily involved in, in criminal acts, destruction of evidence, uh, uh, suborning perjury in others, uh, embezzling funds. And he says, look, there was a conspiracy. I was running it. These guys were in on it. But the evidence of these guys being in on it was pretty cloudy. But if you bring the case in the District of Columbia, where everybody's a born and bred Democrat, and they don't like you to begin with, after a three-month trial where they say everybody in the Nixon White House was in on the conspiracy, and John Dean says, yeah, I met with them all the time, the, the, the defendants don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on today. It's right. the same charges. It's obstruction of justice and conspiracy. And today, what did Trump get? 5% of the vote in the district? But oh. the juries in the district are taken from the registered voter rolls. So Hillary got 90%. I think Biden got 94%. 94%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then, bad. you know, there were some the green candidate and stuff like that. Ah. But the jury is it, just dead set against you. We saw in the Sussman prosecution, you know, they deliver, they deliver for five hours because Hillary might be at risk and they, they acquit him. I mean, it, if you well, read the one side, Foreman, it, it's the a juror for woman said that they did that because they had the FBI had, and uh, the, John Durham had better things to do. They needed to do more important things than go after this yes, guy. Isn't that wonderful for her to come oh. out and say that? Wow. And, and you know, one of them, their daughter played on the soccer team with, with Sussman's yeah. daughter, two of them had given money, not just were in favor of Hillary. They'd contributed to the campaign. Yes. So Thousands. you've got this, <laughs> unique political jurisdiction. There's no counterpart in the entire nation of 90% Democrats, but that's the seat of government. So the prosecution, which is the Democrat uh, uh, attorney general and Democrat judges and and, and Democrat prosecutors and and Democrat-run select House committee, uh, this is a field day. But the one difference is today you have no, you do not have a monolithic media. You've got talk radio, you've got podcasts, you've got Fox News, you've got Newsmax, and you can get another point of view. Now, not on the J6 committee, as right. they've said, this is the first time in 50 years you have a committee where there's no opposition, there's no cross-examination, there's no other well, point right. of view. And, and, you know, that brings us back to the fact that Woodward and Bernstein admitted that they had talked with people who were grand jurors. There's only one perspective ever presented in a grand jury, and that's prosecution's perspective. There are you no defense it. attorneys. There, There's no exculpatory evidence. There's you, nothing you that will be provided. You can't put on your own witnesses. You can't you, cross-examine. Your lawyer can't be in the room. Now, focus right. on that just for a second. But 
when the government goes to use that information in a court of law, all the safeguards of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments come into play. You, they got to do it in public. They got to put their case on first uh, the, through the testimony of sworn witnesses. You get to cross-examine. You get to put on your own witnesses. You got to be found guilty by a jury of your peers voting unanimously that beyond a reasonable doubt you did these things. But what happened in Watergate, they took the grand jury testimony and evidence, which was all one-sided, all cherry-picked by the prosecutors. They conveyed it in secret to the House Judiciary Committee, and the House Judiciary Committee acts on it and says, oh, we ought to impeach this guy. And and Nixon's ah. people didn't even know what the accusations were, let alone try to refute them. So you, it's it's hugely unfair. Now, the fact is the Fifth and Sixth Amendments don't apply to congressional hearings. But what went on with the Irvin Committee in the Senate, what's going on today in the House Select Committee, is a legislative trial that requires the federal prosecutors to hold off prosecuting because if you've been indicted, you are not going to testify in front of that committee. You can mm-hmm. claim uh, a right of, against self-incrimination, and they, right. they will not demand that you come. But, but you if, can't the do prosec- it unless- if the prosecutors deliberately hold off, then the committee runs rampant. And, of course, in this Department of Justice, if you don't turn over your records, and, and they're not just trying to ruin Trump. They're trying to ruin the entire Republican Party. I mean, the the whole theory is anybody who glanced uh, at that at that rally or encouraged constituents to go or spoke highly of Donald Trump is at risk of being charged with being a part of that conspiracy. And you say, or somebody, I guess, uh, wrapping up your book said, first, the scandal itself was skillfully exploited by President Nixon's political appointments, going back to Watergate now, Absolutely. who were far more interested in destroying the Republican Party in advance of the 1976 presidential election than in punishing actual wrongdoing. And, they and, used it and, as a fishing expedition. And they succeeded. And we got Jimmy Carter. I mean, it was, it was just like, just like today, hugely political. But again, today, some people in the news media are saying so. They're screaming bloody murder about how unfair this is. Back at the Irvin Committee, there wasn't a ripple on the face of the lake. There was nobody defending Nixon. There were three Republicans. But they each made the decision, just just what Baker said, Howard Baker, what did the president know and when did he know it? I think my political future is better to pose as an objective pursuer of truth, not a defender of Richard Nixon. So the American public, and the only way they learned about about Watergate was from the Irvin Committee, the American public is absolutely convinced that White House is filled with a bunch of crooks. They're all bad guys because that's the way the hearings were conducted. Mm -hmm. And John Dean comes across as a whistleblowing hero, which is one of the great frauds of all time. Well, let's talk about that in a second. But I just wanted to, to slip in here for just a second. The fact that one of the reporters that was featured in a Washington Post discussion recently of the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, which included Dwight Chapin, by the way, you probably have seen it, said that, uh, why? well, why would Sam Irvin have anything to uh, go after Richard Nixon about? And, you know, he, <laughs> you know, he would never uh, do this. And I thought I was laughing because I thought, well, why would Sam Irvin go after 
Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was pretty much a progressive, right? Uh, In we some use respects. a different term. We don't use right. progressive. We right, say right, right. we say a pragmatist. Richard Nixon mm. was president during a time when we really thought the government was a force for good. And yeah. Nixon had a hugely successful first term. Uh, no question he about did. that. Uh, but the Democrats had just been wiped out in a nationwide election and were very fearful of the conservative growth. So on, on September 15th, when the indictments were announced of the Watergate burglars, and it didn't go very high in the reelection campaign, Senator Edward Kennedy assigned five people on his subcommittee of the Senate to launch their own investigation. He issued administrative subpoenas to the phone companies and the credit card companies and started gathering stuff without the without the uh, defendants knowing. But then it started to look too political because Kennedy was supposed to run in 76. So Mike Mansfield, the uh, leader of the Senate, uh, uh, majority speaker, majority leader of the Senate, decided they needed to get quasi objective people in charge of this special committee. And they picked Sam Irvin. Uh, he was in the twilight of his career. He wasn't going to be running for re-election. Uh, uh, he was from a safe state. And then they pulled off three hugely partisan votes. They voted to only review the 1972 presidential election, not mm-hmm. 68, not 64, not 60, when the Republicans were all bugged, and only a presidential election, so they didn't look at Senate elections or House elections where these kind of shenanigans were going on too. And they voted to have the Democrats have a one-vote majority on the committee so that on any issue, the Democrats would prevail. So the vote to create the Irvin Committee is 77 to zero. What a strange number out of a Senate of 100 people. What it means is 23 Republicans refused to go along with it because it was going to be a one-sided effort to destroy Richard Nixon. And there's Howard Baker, and Howard's not unlike Liz Cheney, if you'll forgive me. She's a big hero to the media, you know, objective, uh, uh, wonderful person, uh, helping to preside over the demise of the Republican Party. Well, Howard Baker wanted to run for president someday, and he felt his political future would be enhanced by appearing to be objective and not partisan. So he never objected to anything in the public hearings. And he's got that great quote. What did the president know and when did he know it? Well, the amazing thing, remember, I transcribed the tapes. I transcribed them then. I've worked on them ever since. I'm pretty knowledgeable about the tapes. If you go through the tapes, what the president learned was on that Wednesday morning, March 21st, when John Dean comes in for the first time in nine months and gives the president specifics about what what had been going on in the cover-up. Both Dean and Nixon, even today, maintain that this was the first time Dean ever told the president. Now, what Dean says is, I've since concluded other people must have been telling him what was going on. But that's a cop-out. It's not on the tapes. So, they, well, he stepped out of the office. They knew it was being taped. They did this. They did that. But if you, if you listen to the tapes, 
they were never supposed to become public. Nixon's mm-hmm. not worried about being taped. He right. thinks out loud. And those tapes, and I fancy myself a uh, uh, an, an authority on the tapes, uh, uh, you can take stuff out of context. It's like the Bible. You can prove anything you want if you take a passage out of context. But in the overall, as, as people start to become comfortable with the big picture, the tapes are going to show Nixon got duped, that his own people protected themselves instead of the presidency. And for the longest time, you didn't really appreciate that. I mean, you were on Nixon's team. You were certainly in his corner. But it wasn't until later that you realized, holy cow, the guy didn't really know. There was no smoking gun. And that's the smoking gun. And that comes out right at the end. Uh, Boy, you talk about a mistake. The Supreme Court rules the tapes have to be turned over to the special prosecutor. First to Sereca, so he can take out executive privilege. He can take out national security. But they need it for the grand jury. Nothing stands in the way of the grand jury getting evidence. They never ruled they had to go to the Hill. They never ruled the Irvin Committee or the Impeachment Mm -hmm. Committee got Nixon's tapes. They were private conversations. They were his. Unless a showing could be made, they might reflect criminality. So the decision comes down. 65 tapes have to be turned over. Uh, I was deputy counsel to the inside lawyer, Fred Bizart. Nixon and Haig and and, uh, others are out at San Clemente on the West Coast, the Western White House. Uh, Nixon gets on the phone and says to Bizart, there's a couple tapes you ought to go listen to. There might be some difficulty. So he directs Bizart to go listen to the tape of June 23rd, 1972. This is what becomes known as the smoking gun. Six days after the Watergate break-in, Bazaar had never heard it. Nixon wouldn't let him listen to it. Uh, he goes and listens. And the tape's very clear. Haldeman comes in and says, the FBI investigation's going in a direction we don't want it to go. They're looking into how the money got to the re-election committee. Now, just for your listeners, the burglars are caught red-handed. They on them on their person and back in their hotel room. There's five thousand dollars of uncirculated hundred dollar bills, sequentially numbered. And the FBI, without a whole lot of effort, can figure out where those bills came into circulation. They were part of uh, shipping of blocks of bills to the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami. So they say, well, where did these bills go? And the Miami bank says, well, the, the, uh, I think it's the Republican Bank of Miami asked us for 50,000 in $100 bills. We sent these blocks over. So they go to the bank and it's Bernard Barker's business bank account. He was one of the Watergate burglars. Mm. So they've traced the money to creep because there's more of that money, uh, uh, that, that was donated to creep. But the FBI, being thorough, wants to find out how the money got to creep in the first place. And that's going to be a problem because the money, not the, not the bills themselves, but the, mm-hmm. the cashier's checks uh, uh, were donated by prominent Democrats who were giving substantial financial contributions to Nixon's reelection campaign to hedge their bets. And they made the donations 
under absolute assurance of confidentiality. So that's what that's what Haldeman is covering on the tape. But when Bazark heard it, this is late in the game. He panics and he thinks Nixon is agreeing to try to shut down the whole investigation. Because what Haldeman says is John Dean has come up with a way to protect these guys' identity. What he suggests is we get the CIA to tell the FBI these people are part of one of their operations and they should stay clear. And Nixon agrees. Now, you could say technically that's an obstruction because they're trying to interfere with the thoroughness of the FBI investigation. The CIA doesn't want to do it, but they actually do it. And the FBI interviews of these two people are put off for 10 days. And then the CIA says, you know, we really don't have an interest. The FBI interviews them and decides they got nothing to do with Watergate. Mm. They gave money. The money was cashier's checks. The cashier's checks were sent down to Miami to be cashed. That's where the $100 bills came in. But I'm sitting there with Bizarre, and Bizarre says to me, Nixon's a goner. This is an open and shut obstruction of justice. And we're going to have to put this tapes out, put this tape out. So I knew I'm the third person in the United States to hear the tape. I'm the one who prepared the transcript. And I'm the one who called it the smoking gun. Keen off of Fred's being appalled that this tape existed. That's when I decided I'd been devoting every waking moment to defending a man who, who couldn't be defended. And, and when he resigned, I was just, I was upset as could be. I thought we'd been had. And it wasn't until 30 years later, when I started getting into these records, that I pieced together this, and, and the, the role is done by Gordon Liddy. Gordon is counsel to the finance committee, and he says, I, I know how we can launder these checks so they can't be traced. And the Democrats didn't want to be outed because they didn't want the, the stars of the Democrat Party to get mad at them. Oh, that was the whole they, point of keeping the, the stars of the Democratic Party would be ruined. I mean, the, 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 the campaign had the money and Nixon had been reelected. But this guy, the one guy that we can talk about, his name is Dwayne Andreas. He's chairman and CEO of Archer Midlands, Archer Daniel Midlands, this mm-hmm. huge agribusiness. And he's a very prominent Democrat. In fact, when Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey in 1968, Dwayne Andrus was finance chairman for Humphrey. You couldn't find a more devoted Democrat. When Humphrey became Lyndon Johnson's vice president in 1964, he had to put all of his assets into a blind trust. He picked one trustee to watch his assets. The trustee was Dwayne Andrews. It would be it would look very, very bad for that guy's oh, name to come out. So that's ruined. why the, the Republicans went to the wall to hide his money. You got it. You got it. And with with respect, innocently so. He had done nothing wrong. He was just hedging his bets. We sure. liked the money, he gave twenty five thousand bucks. And they said that they were doing it at this point in time because henceforth, there would be a new campaign finance law, which would divulge who those people were. If and so had, that's if, why. Yes. If 
if his gift had come in after April 7th, 1972, it couldn't be hidden. His, his, his name had to be disclosed. So what he did, really interesting, Victoria, this stuff gets so wonderfully complicated. He left, <laughs> he left $25,000 in cash in his condominium in Miami for the bundler, the campaign aide, to pick up. Uh, the campaign aide didn't get there till after April 7th. So the money Uh-oh. is left. Uh, uh, Andreas relinquishes control, but the, the campaign didn't take possession until after April 7th. So it was kind of a legal question. Liddy was counsel to the finance committee. He says, no problem. I, I, I believe this was legally received. But just to be sure the question doesn't come up, I'll go launder it because I've got this new best friend. I got this new best friend down in Miami. So he takes the cashier's checks down to Miami uh, and comes back with uh, uh, 80,000 in cash. And it was legal, right? It was legal to do this? I mean, mean, it sounded a little hanky, but I've heard of this legally being done. So I uh, I don't know. You could get a Harvard law professor to say, no, it wasn't. But you know, it, it, since no one would ever know, and since these kinds of shenanigans had been going on for decades, the old law, which was repealed as of April 7th, was called the Federal Corrupt Practices Act of 1925. The Department of Justice had concluded it was unenforceable. The last enforcement they brought was 1934, and they testified in advocating the new law that they followed a policy of non-enforcement on the prior law. So there were all kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this, this interpretation of Gordon Liddy's was not, it was not off the wall. But, but because it involved the Cubans and Liddy who were caught red-handed, it became a cause celeb. And when Bazart heard the tape, he went crazy because it's Nixon himself concurring in the use of the CIA. And he misinterpreted. We we demanded, we as Fred, the tape be made public. It was made public on April 5th, and Nixon resigns three days later. Now, what's interesting is whether you believe my version of the tape or not, it only became publicly known on August 5th. Nixon was already on the ropes. He'd already been named a co-conspirator. The House of the House Judiciary Committee had already recommended his impeachment. And that's because they told both the grand jury and the Judiciary Committee in secret that oh. Nixon had approved the blackmail payment to Howard Hunt. So you get this fog, <laughs> the fog of mm-hmm. war, where people say, well, no, he resigned because of the smoking gun. Well, yes, that's true, but nobody knew about the smoking gun before August 5th, and they'd already crucified him in secret with misrepresentations. Wow. Well, you said that there may be vindication for people who were involved and, as you say, abused by the system because there's an office of professional professional misconduct. Oh, responsibility. I was going to say misconduct. And, you know, it came up. It was was mentioned on the air within the last two or three days. Uh, Oh. uh, Let me me see if I can That's probably because you you were the one pursuing it. No, 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 no. No, it's today. Uh, uh, It was uh, someone said OPR. 
Oh, no. Remember, remember the uh, Border Patrol yeah. whipped, allegedly yes. whipped? Well, when they were talking about them being cleared for not having done that, somebody said OPR looked into this and concluded that those were the reins and they were not used to whip. And I thought to myself, I wonder how OPR got jurisdiction. Now, the attorney general can assign them. This is the Office of Professional Responsibility. It's done by career lawyers, not political appointees. And their stated mission is to investigate allegations of abuse by Department of Justice lawyers. That's their main mission. They can be assigned other responsibilities, and apparently they were. I found that out last October, that this unit existed, mm-hmm. and I immediately alleged attorney misconduct with regard to Watergate 50 years ago, that these special prosecutors misrepresented to the grand jury, sat on exculpatory evidence, met secretly with a trial judge, all kinds of, of wrongdoing. And then I followed that up uh, uh, with eight follow-up letters. They're all posted on my website. If yes. your listeners want to really get into Watergate, they can go on www.shepherdonwatergate.com, and all my research is posted there. See, what, what happens with normal authors, they build a website designed to sell the book. I'm bringing up these books, and I'm putting these documents in the appendices of these books to try to change public perception. So I'm not hiding anything. You go on my website mm-hmm. You will find links to dozens and dozens of embarrassing documents from within the office of the special prosecutor. And so I've posted these complaints of attorney misconduct. Now, they promise in their website a full investigation and a written report. And they say, now, don't don't expect to hear from us for a while because we're going to really go into this Uh in full detail. And I like believe to believe that? I like to believe that's what they're doing. And I've begged them to let me come down and explain because Watergate is so complicated, and that there's been such turnover. There's only a handful of people alive who really know what was going on behind the scenes. Two of the most significant special prosecutors are among those people who are alive. So the Office of Professional Responsibility has got people they could talk to. If they if they chose to, who have you turned in? No, no, no. Oh, you, you, you can't can, say who you've who you've uh, well, asked them you to can, investigate. You you, you can I'll read the, you website. can read the filings. Okay, I will. Uh, uh, they're they're posted. You you go on the home page of my website and scroll down, and the first thing you'll see is a quickie summaries of my three books. Yep. Then the complaint of attorney misconduct. Then a stage play we did for Off-Broadway that was Nixon's impeachment trial, hypothetical, Mm -hmm. uh, if my documents had come out at the time, then the nine Hugh Hewitt podcasts, and then the 12 lectures I did in 2019 at Temple University, which has probably 200 PowerPoint slides. I mean, all my stuff is is there on uh, on the website. Fair enough. And the last, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about John Dean, and we're very over time, I suspect. But um, here's a guy who got a cream puff, 
uh, treatment, and he's the guy who continues to go on MSNBC along with Carl Bernstein to maintain that every other thing in life is worse than Watergate. Have you ever seen anything worse than Watergate? Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't (laughs) say Nixon was the gold standard for criminality, and his people did worse than anybody, and everything that's happened that has to do with Republicans since is worse than Watergate. You can't have it both (laughs) ways. But that's what that's that's what they're trying to do. John Dean is the arch villain. Uh, uh, the FBI labeled him the master manipulator of Watergate. He recruits Gordon Liddy. He's at these meetings in the attorney general's office where the plan is described in detail. When the arrests occur of the Watergate burglars, Dean is at risk of prosecution, so he runs the cover-up. The White House thought he was protecting the White House, which was not at risk. The campaign was at risk. But to Dean, they were interchangeable, and he was protecting himself. Then when it comes down around his ears, and he commits a whole series of criminal acts, uh, uh, and when it comes down around his ears, he's the first end to see the career attorneys looking for immunity. And they won't give it to him because his extensive involvement. John Dean, there's a, there's a document in my first book, where the prosecutors, the original prosecutors, detailed Dean's criminal acts. But he's disbarred by Virginia after he pleads to a single felony, and the allegations are subornation of perjury, which is convincing other people to lie, destroying evidence, this is evidence taken from Howard Hunt's safe, embezzling money, he's the only person in Watergate, he took $4,000 of campaign funds supposedly to pay for his honeymoon, and authorizing the payment of hush money to the Watergate defendants because he approved the payout of the first 350000 which he characterizes later as hush money. So they said, well, fine, you were involved in the beginning. John Dean has been disbarred from the practice of law since 1974, but he's always introduced as the president's lawyer. He can't represent clients. He can't appear in court. He's disbarred. He's taught ethics seminars, which is one of the great frauds of all time. And he said the other day to 50,000 lawyers. Now, lawyers have to take continuing legal education each year to keep up their license, usually one or two hours of ethics training. In most states, the training has to be offered by licensed lawyers. John Dean is not a licensed lawyer. So there's some shill with a law degree who sits on the stage while John Dean spins tales of how everybody else acted improperly. And he never gets around to describing, oh, yes, I did wrong. But his real his real uh, description is what everybody else did, just like he did with the original prosecutors. Now, they work out a deal for Dean. They say in their book, the prosecutor's book, we had to punish him because if it looked like he was going to walk free, the jury wouldn't convict his, his colleagues. So, Sirica calls Dean in before the trial and throws the book at him, one to four years in federal prison. But John doesn't go to prison. His confinement starts the opening day of trial, when it was scheduled to open, September. And so he can testify, he's the lead government witness, that he's testifying from confinement. But he's confined to an army base where they keep witnesses in a witness protection program. Dean will tell you 
he was in the witness protection program. But not the way we normally think about it. That's where they give you a brand new identity because you've ratted out the mafia. Dean cooperated. Dean, Dean had a bunk bed in an army barracks. But one week after the, the uh, cover-up trial concluded, where his colleagues were convicted on all counts of uh, uh, conspiracy, obstruction, and perjury, John Dean was set completely free. No probation, no parole, no nothing. So the jury, in my view, was defrauded. They were hmm. convinced Dean was being punished just like his colleagues were going to be punished. But he wasn't. And he, he said on other programs since that I never spent a day in prison. If you listen very carefully, he was lead off witness in the Trump impeachment in front of the House Judiciary Committee. If, if you listen carefully, he says under his breath at one point, I, 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 uh, Jim Jordan, Congressman Jordan says, mm -hmm. I know it. You paid your dues. You went to prison. And Dean says, I, I never went to prison. Mm. And it's true, but it was a fraud. The master manipulator comes off like an innocent whistleblower when he's at the very heart of it. Jeff Shepard, the author of The Nixon Conspiracy, The Real Watergate Scandal, The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President, President, I should say, go to his website, shepherdonwatergate.com. Thank you so much for your time today on the Adult in the Room podcast. Thank you, Victoria. I look forward to talking to you again. In the next episode of the Adult in the Room podcast, Professor Nancy Piercy. Now, if you've read some of my stories about some of the culture wars going on over at PJ Media or heard me on KTTH Radio in Seattle, you know this woman has played a huge role in my understanding of how our fundamental rights, our very biology has been rent by the courts and why it matters to freedom-loving people. So make sure that you follow, subscribe, share, and uh, give us a five-star rating over at Apple because they're the guys doing the ratings these days. And by all means, make sure you're here next time for my discussions with Professor Nancy Piercy. Until then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>